The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these, and as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The Gospel of the Lord. As you remain standing, would you pray with me? Lord God, as we have assembled today to bring honor and glory to you, we pray that as we open your word to read, to learn, to study, and to be taught by you through the power of your spirit, your word would change our hearts, that we would love you more, seek you more, know you more, and above all, receive your love like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is indeed a pleasure, it always is, to be here among you at this wonderful parish. I am very grateful to John for for inviting me to come and to be with you. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. It is a season of waiting, of anticipation, of preparing for the coming Messiah. It is also, as a result, a season of introspection, of considering the state of our hearts, that if we're gonna welcome a savior, what kind of a place is he coming to? And so in these weeks, and it's shortened because of the last week of Advent being just one day, we do well to realize this season represents the hastening of the time of Christ's return. In fact, I don't know how you did it, John. 
you're just an expert liturgist, I guess, that you would have this reading from Hebrews in the midst of this series on considering Jesus on the first Sunday of Advent. And the reason I say that is because of the nature of the reading. You heard it. It's not an easy word to hear. It's far too much for us to try to consider in the time allotted for this message this morning. But I would want us to, to consider three things as we consider this text. First, I want us to see a necessary pause that the writer causes. And then a solemn warning that he issues. And then a certain hope that he reminds us of. So if you've got your Bible, the Red Bibles, we're on 1003 as we pick up the text. You've heard it taught so well in this series, and I'll tell you, if you have not heard every message in this series, go back. It's online. I've listened to every one of them. They're extraordinary. This is not an easy book to teach. In fact, we're not sure about much of it. We don't know who wrote it, as you've heard. We don't know exactly who the audience was, although every indication is that it's a group of people who'd come to faith in Christ out of a history in Judaism. We don't know if it was a letter, if it was uh, an essay, a sermon. It, it could have it actually been almost a graduate-level lecture for all intents and purposes. And he gets to the point in the text where he mentions the order of Melchizedek and he hits pause. You can see in the text what he says. Let me paraphrase what I think is going on. It's as if the author is saying, before I go any further, I need to say something. And it is going to be hard for you to hear, and so I'm going to tell you that right now. And quite frankly, I need to be very careful with how I say it because you might completely misunderstand what I intend. But I want to encourage you to stay with me, to persevere to believe the remarkable promises of God. That's what he's saying at the end of chapter 5. We see in verse 11, he says this, since you have become hard, dull of hearing. Notice this, it tells us something, those words, since you have become. In other words, it always wasn't that way. They weren't always dull of hearing. Since you have become this way. At one time, they were eager. They were hungry. They were, they were growing. They, they couldn't get enough of the teachings of Christ. But not so now. Now, he says, now you're dull of hearing. Another way to put it is, it's as if he's saying, you hear, but you're not listening. Now, what's that like? Well, flown in an airplane, anyone? Good, you have. So you remember what happens when you get to your seat and everything's comfortable and the flight attendants begin the routine where they tell you everything you're supposed to know in case of an emergency. Even though you're, dry, you're flying over land, they tell you about the rafts that are going to come out. You get the idea. And so while this person is going on telling us about everything, we're on our phones getting that last call in, texting that last person. We are already putting in our earbuds so that we can listen to music. We have our laptops up. We're still trying to squish our bag in the overhead compartment while the attendant 
describes all the safety features. And we hear her, but nobody's listening. And if you don't believe me, fly southwest. <laughs> they do everything imaginable to try to spice up that speech so that somebody might listen or at least be entertained. And in fact, I know this to be true because I turned to someone I was flying with one time just out of fun and said, what did she just say? And he said, I don't know, something about emergency exits. <laughs> Hearing, but not listening. We also know, as we look at this text, that they were not new converts. In verse 12, it says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. In other words, by this time, you've been at this a while. You did not just meet Christ yesterday. It's time to go on from the ABCs. You should be answering questions. You should be teachers. Far beyond just knowing the Ten Commandments, you should be able to discern the Scriptures so closely that you understand the ways of God. That in the midst of a confusing life, when right and wrong sometimes seems to have lines that have gotten blurred, you're able to discern the truth and the wisdom of God. And so he hits pause. And so will I. Because my question is, how about you? Are you listening? Or are you just hearing? In your walk with Christ, how long has it been? Did you meet him when you were a child or was it a couple of years ago? How, how long has it been? Do you still have an eagerness, an earnestness, a desire to go deeper and to know more, to experience more of the love of God in Christ such that it would so fashion and shape who you are that you live in this world as a person who knows that he or she is loved by God. And I tell you, that is a different kind of life than those who live as those who do not know that. Discipleship is a lifelong pursuit. Discipleship is not simply making a decision. Yes, I think I've heard the gospel. Yes, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I think I'll pray a prayer. I'm good. Now I can do whatever I want. It's as if we treat salvation as a life insurance policy. I'm just going to sign on the bottom line. But what about discipleship? What about growing deeper? You see, a disciple of Jesus is a lifelong follower. He began it with the disciples, come follow me. I'll make you become fishers of men. A lifelong follower, a lifelong learner, and a lifelong imitator of Christ. You know what I think we do? We treat discipleship as a rider on our insurance policy. In other words, we so often see Christianity as, well, it's about salvation, and praying a prayer so that I can be received. And then for the over-eager among us, you can get a rider on that policy and grow deeper in Christ. No. It's all together. That we would receive him, to grow in him, to persevere in him, to be fruitful in him.
So as he's about to get into an explanation, a very Jewish explanation about the person Melchizedek, he hits pause to say, are you really listening to me? Because you've grown dull of hearing. And then he moves into a solemn warning. And that warning really is divided into two parts. First, he's, and it's a warning unlike but similar to the warnings we've received already. John has spoken on both of them in chapter 2. Pay attention. Where are you investing your attention? John asked us. And then in chapter 3, the warning about hard hearts and what it takes to have one and what it takes to have it softened again. But now look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What's he saying? He's saying, move on. It's it's time to, to leave behind, to go on to maturity. And then he lists several things. But if you're looking at it, it sounds kind of odd. It's an odd expression, especially since elementary doctrine about Christ is not something a believer leaves behind. In fact, it's the elementary doctrine of Christ that we stand upon, that we delve into. That the more we grow in Christ, the more we realize I will never fully understand this in all its fullness. Leave it behind? We delve into it, trying to fathom it. Many commentators and scholars would urge us to see this as an exhortation to move on from the ABCs of faith to get ready to study the classics of the faith. And if this were a solitary sentence to a group of Gentile converts, it might be the case. But as you've heard several times in this service, in this series, you've heard from John, you've heard heard from Caleb and Bishop Des, the most likely audience to this was Jewish converts to Christianity. In many ways, these people who had received Christ but having lived in the context of the law of the temple, of the sacrificial system, of the priests, and the high priest. These very people felt challenged to jettison it all. To jettison to what seemed to a non-Christian Jew as heretical and blasphemous. Can you imagine coming to faith as a first century Jew? And all that you know and the systems and the truths that you've adhered to. And then you accept Christ as your savior, as your great high priest. No longer necessary to sacrifice in the temple. Salvation is given as a gift, not an attainment. And you share that with your Jewish friends who that day were going to go to the temple, who were keeping the law and doing the ceremonial washings and all the other things that are being listed in this text. Jesus, as promised Messiah, Son of God, fully human and fully divine, greater than the angels, greater than Moses. Really? They probably were asked. Well, what about all of the ceremonial washings or baptisms 
that you do with your hands before you go into worship, or that you do with the utensils so that the food you eat might be clean? What about the office of the high priest, the only person and also of the tribe of Aaron, of the lineage of Aaron, the Levitical tribe, and the whole sacrificial system? Are you telling me that doesn't count anymore? And the new convert would have to say, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. When the author is saying leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, on the one hand, it could be understood, and many scholars do understand it as these foundational beliefs for the Christian. But there is another way to consider it. Because the literal interpretation of the Greek in this text of elementary doctrine of Christ is this, the beginning of the Christ word or the beginning of the Messiah word. This is not so much a reference to Christianity 101, but rather the beginning word about the Christ, the anointed one, found where? In the Hebrew scriptures. And the old covenant, which were all given in order to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. So the author is actually exhorting them to leave behind those practices of the old covenant that it seems that some of them had turned back to. Those things which were intended to point to Christ and to go on to maturity, to fullness of knowing who the Christ is, and he is none other than Jesus. So the author is exhorting them to, to leave behind those practices of the old covenant, which were intended to point them to Christ. And why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because he has just said that Jesus is our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. But the high priest is a Levite, and Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. He cannot be anybody's high priest. Instead, they're to see that he has actually fulfilled this, replacing this high priesthood by a man who was from the tribe of Judah whose own death was sufficient to end the entire sacrificial system, no need for an additional high priest, all of the intricate washings of hands and pots and utensils no longer needed, and then to base all of it on the report of this man named Jesus. That was what was to be believed. I mean, can't you just use your own sanctified imagination to think of the tension and the struggle that a new convert to Christianity coming out of Judaism would feel, having habitually gone to temple, always been faithful to the law, always seeing the sacrificial system at work, always bringing his tithes to the priest, always, 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 until now. Is it too hard to believe that some with this highly tactile approach to God that we find in Judaism. Some saying, wait a minute, I'm supposed to take all of this by faith when I can see all this and do it and participate in it? I think I'm going back to what I know. (laughs) 
And then he begins verse four with the, sec with the second part of the warning, a dangerous consequence for those who do this. For it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Let me be honest. That verse can take your breath away those passages because what it sounds like he's saying is to be a full participant in the life of the church you can taste the goodness you can see God's actions you can see him move in people's lives you can sing the hymns and pray the prayers and kneel at the right time and still miss it it seems to be what he's saying but but stay with me for a moment because that's not an odd thought the idea of people being able to taste the goodness of God, see his handiwork, experience his grace, and still miss out. Remember, this is a Jewish audience, and they know the story of the Exodus by heart. And what do we see happen in that story? But the people of God experiencing the power of God to deliver them through Moses, through the waters of the Red Sea. We see the power of God on display as this group of brick makers, no warriors among them, defeat the mighty Amalekites and defeat them and beat them under their feet so that they could continue in the journey. We see them experiencing the goodness of God and the giving of manna, the giving of quail, of a rock being struck so that water gushes. We see them experience all of that. We see them get to the cusp of entering the promised land with the very promise of God saying, it is yours, go take it. And they don't. And so that whole generation that had been saved from Egypt doesn't get into the promised land. I would suggest that those who were listening to this teaching from the author understood exactly what he meant. It's also something Jesus would give voice to in the parable of the sower. The sower going out to sow the seed, he tells his own disciples, here's the, here's the story. The seed is the word. The soil is the heart. And the, so, the seed gets sown in many places, some hard parched land. It can't even take root. It barely germinates. Then there's the rocky soil where there is germination and there's some roots that are, that are going down but it can't get water and it's burned up by the sun. And so something happened because the word Jesus said was received with great joy but then it died. And then in the next there was the seed that fell in the soil that had weeds. The weeds grew up with the, the plant and it got squelched. Jesus says that's the anxieties of this world and our seduction by riches and it keeps us from the final stage of growth which is the fruit that comes from perseverance. Now we have to, we have to hold in tension our knowledge that God does take us at our word when we say I want to follow you. 
But as we do, the evidence of that being something truly in our hearts is that we would persevere and be fruitful. Persevere and be fruitful. It's the point of the parable of the sower. It's what he is saying, at the, the, the author is saying at the end of this section, for the land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who's, for whose sake is cultivated receives a blessing. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and nearing to be cursed and its end is to be burned. Now I've got to be frank that teaching disturbs me. <laughs> it disturbs me because everything in me wants to say, I prayed a prayer when I was 15. And God has to keep his end of the bargain because I signed the insurance policy. But you know, we also have to take the full counsel of God God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, Jesus actually repeats this in his own ministry. These people's lips profess my word, but their hearts are far from me. Merely speaking the words without the heart's devotion will never produce fruit. Salvation is not the fruit of an incantation but rather a true persevering faith that is fruitful. Finally, the, in the last section, the author gives a hope. In fact, he, he says to them that he's actually not worried that this has happened to them, but he nonetheless felt he had to warn them because it is a consequence if they don't turn. He says, though we speak in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God's not unjust so as to overlook, get this, your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Enduring faith that's fruitful. And then he ends it with this great hope. He calls their attention to God's promise to Abraham, promise that he would make of him a great nation, though he was old, Sarah was old, and she was barren. That there would be a child, and there would be a great nation to come from that. And he says that he waited patiently and waited and waited. We have several times when the scriptures show us in Genesis chapter 12 where the promise is given, Genesis chapter 12 where the covenant is restored, and then later we see that God says it again when, he, when Abraham obeys God and offers his son Isaac, his only son, the fruit of the promise as a sacrifice to God in obedience. And it's then that God gives an oath. 
Listen to what he says. And thus Abram, Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to shore more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he said, pinky promise. No, that's not what it says in the text. I'm sorry. He said, by his character and by his name, he made an oath with his own word, which is unbreakable. But he also said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. And he gave Abraham a certain hope of what he would do. You know, in the story of the time, the stories of the times that God would come to Abraham having first given the promise, and then as he waited, reminding him of the promise, we read in chapter 15 that Abraham's response to God was not the most godly. Because when God comes back and says, I'm going to do this from you for you, Abraham essentially says, I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm done with this. The only heir I have is Eliezer. I have a child of a slave. You have not kept your promise. You cannot do what you say you do. I do not want to hear it anymore. Have you ever felt that way? Where you think, this isn't working. I don't know if I can believe you, God. I've always been fascinated by what God does with Abraham. He says these words, come outside. Now, if he says come outside, that tells us he was inside. Inside what? Well, probably his tent, because he was a nomad. A tent that he probably bought with his own money. And what was hanging in the tent were probably pieces of art and cooking ware and things that either he had fashioned or a servant had fashioned or he purchased with his own money. And there as he sat, trying to consider the impossibility of the promise of God to be fulfilled in his life, he is surrounded by the sum total of things that he can buy, acquire, and do. And God says, in essence, you're never going to believe me if you surround yourself by that. Come outside. And so Abram leaves the confines of his own abilities, of his own provision. And he goes outside. And God says, look at the stars. Count them if you can. That'll be the number of your descendants. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, you're not going to be able to have this certain hope. You're not going to be able to persevere to the end in faith so that you would be fruitful when you're surrounded only by the things that you can do, you can manufacture, you can come up with. You need to focus on me and my ability. Look at the stars that I've put in the sky. And what does the text tell us then? And Abram believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. We are heirs to that faith. It's the steadfastness of that faith, the perseverance in that faith that brings about the fruitfulness that is the demonstration of the reality of salvation. The text tells us that there is no decision or action of man that can ever thwart the purposes and promises of God. 
His promises are sure. But when we surround ourselves merely by things that we can do and manufacture on our own, we will always struggle to believe. So you've been exhorted in this series to take time in the scripture, the work of God, to consider the person of Christ, the Son of God, to consider the promises that get rehearsed when a group of us come together in community groups to encourage each other with the promises that they have believed, that they've waited on and have seen fulfilled by the hand of God himself, not their own machinations, the work of God. God is still calling us, come outside. Look at the stars and believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we are hearing you right in a text that's debated by scholars and commentators. And in fact, it still takes us to the same place in the end, whichever view we have, that you keep your promises and you call us to put our hope in you even in those times when we cannot see you or the fulfillment of those promises to persevere in our faith because you are the faithful one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.